I told you all last week that we were going to be beginning today on the Holy Spirit, and we will be, uh, but I do have one little thing to share with you on Jesus' incarnation before we start the new section. This comes courtesy of uh, Bruce Ware's Systematic Theology course from biblicaltraining.org. Let me just say, if you have any interest in, uh, if you're looking for any sort of resources <clears throat> for biblical teaching, uh, download that app. It is absolutely fantastic. Biblical Training app, uh, or you can go to their website, biblicaltraining.org. It is <clears throat> by far the best free resource that I've ever seen as far as the, the content that's on there. Uh, courses on everything. I mean, Bible study, theology, whatever. And it's it's um, arranged so that there's there's courses for brand new Christians, there's courses for seminary students, and everything in between. Um, so, very good resource there, all free, and uh, <clears throat> it's taught by some of the, the leading biblical scholars around. So check that out if that sounds interesting to you, biblicaltraining.org or the Biblical Training app. Um, I was taking this course on Christology from Bruce Ware on there last week, and he gave an illustration about the incarnation of Jesus that I found very helpful, and so I decided I needed to give it to you all, even though we already finished teaching on that. Um, so as we talked about a few weeks ago, when Jesus becomes human 2,000 years ago, uh, he did not cease to be God. He was still fully divine, um, but he was also fully human. Uh, although he was God, we do understand from Scripture that Jesus seems to have set aside some of his divine prerogatives. Uh, he did not set aside his deity, but he did lay aside the independent use of his divine power. And the illustration of that that Bruce Ware gave was... Um, of a king, imagine a king walking around his kingdom and uh, seeing you know people living in poverty, and so he decides that he wants to experience life as a poor person in his kingdom. And so he you know he goes back to his palace and he changes clothes. He orders his his men to bring him just some rags, and uh, he takes off his crown, takes off his robes, puts on these these tattered clothes uh, to disguise himself. You know, lets his beard grow out a little bit, and then goes out and uh, and lives among these poor people. Um, after a day or so, living among them, you know, eating the scraps of garbage and things that they eat, you know, he would be hungry. He'd be very uncomfortable. Now, as the king, he could order that a feast be brought to him. Uh, but if he did that, then he really would not be entering into their full experience. You know, he would be just kind of cheating that, that system. Uh, it, imagine somebody, you know, fights with him about a scrap of bread or something, and so they, they punch him in the face. Well, as king... Uh, he could order troops to come in and kill the person right there on the spot. But then again, he would not be acting and living as one of them. And so in order to fully live and experience their life, uh, the king would have to uh, take all the suffering that they do and not appeal to his authority as king to shield himself from that. Now, don't push the analogy too far there, but I think that's a helpful uh, framework to think about the incarnation of Jesus, that God took on human flesh, he became one of us, you know, fully entered into our experience as humans. And in so doing, though he was still God, he laid aside some of the privileges and comforts of deity. He suffered like we do. He was tempted like we are. He was weary and hungry. He experienced what we do. And in the end, he was killed by his enemies. All the while, he could have called, as he said, 10,000 angels to come and wipe them all out. You know, he was still God, just like the king, you know, his identity didn't change. The king was still the king. He still had the authority. He still had the power. Um, and so Jesus was still God. He could have commanded the stones to become bread and satisfy his hunger, yet he did not. His identity 
of God was still there. It was still true of him. So he did not lay aside his deity, just like the king did not lay aside his authority as king. But in living among the poor for a few days, he, he entered fully into their experience. In the same way, Jesus laid aside the independent use of his divine power uh, in certain ways. And if you want to see a text for that, Philippians 2.5, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, and being found in fashion, uh, sorry, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, so, Anyway, I know we're done with the section on Jesus, but I thought that was a helpful analogy that I would share with you all before we move on about the incarnation of Jesus. He's still the king. He's still God. Uh, but he, he does lay aside. You understand what I'm saying by that? He lays aside his, uh, the comforts, the, you know, he could do so many things as God, but he sets that aside to enter humanity fully. But he's still God. You see what I'm saying there? His identity didn't change. So is that helpful? Uh, I thought that was a good, a good illustration there. So I figured I'd pass that along. Uh, if you want to dig deeper on these subjects, Bruce Ware's systematic theology courses are just fantastic. Uh, excellent resource there, all free on the biblical training app. Okay, Holy Spirit then. Uh, we're going to move on to this section in our statement of faith, probably going to be three, maybe four weeks, including today. Um, so my plan is to be done with this section before the end of the month. Uh, we're going to begin by <clears throat> reading through the section in our statement of faith, and please do let me know if there's anything that sticks out to you, anything you have a question about in here. Uh, it says, we believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of God, fully divine. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not a force, but a person within the Godhead, possessing all the attributes of personality, including intellect, emotions, and will. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ and convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells all believers, bearing witness that they are children of God, and he is the earnest of their salvation, sealing them unto the day of redemption. He illuminates his word for believers to understand and follow. The Holy Spirit adds each believer into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation, and he imparts believers with spiritual gifts for them to serve God through his church. Believers are instructed both to walk in and to be filled with the Spirit so that they do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh and so that their life may abound with the fruits of the Spirit. Any questions? We're going to teach through that over the next several weeks, but if there's any questions uh, here at the start, that would be helpful for me to know. Catherine. <clears throat> yes, talking about that today. Yep. Okay. Anything else? All right. We're going to work through this then. Uh, today we're going to be focusing on uh, the first couple of sentences there. So the deity of the Holy Spirit and the personality or the personhood of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to begin with uh, the Holy Spirit as a person. And uh, before we do, let me just say, in, it is a shame that in Christianity the person and work of the Holy Spirit has really uh, been misunderstood uh, throughout the history of the church. For a long time, the Spirit was really not talked about much. Um, you had all these books about Jesus, about the deity of Christ, the hypostatic union, and then virtually nothing about the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's been true throughout much of church history. Uh, even in the Council of Nicaea, there is this long statement about Jesus, 
And then the Holy Spirit is just kind of mentioned in passing. I'll, I'll read this for you. The Nicene Creed from 325 AD. Uh, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe in God the Father, and then now we believe in Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, con uh, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things are made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us uh, men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. That's it. That's the, that's the only statement about the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed. So you've got this you know, sentence and a half on the Father, you've got these long section on the Son, and then, oh yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit too. Uh, just sort of tacked on in the end. And that really kind of uh, shows the real lack of emphasis on the Holy Spirit throughout, again, much of church history. Uh, then, a couple hundred years ago, the Pentecostal movement begins, uh, largely in America. And uh, they recognized this problem, the lack of emphasis on the Spirit. And really, we have them to thank for the resurgence uh, in talking about and thinking about the Holy Spirit's role. Uh, but in my judgment, they took things way too far and focused so much on the Holy Spirit and really on the wrong things. Uh, in many of those circles, the, and this is not true of all, I understand that, but in many of those circles, the Spirit is so emphasized um, that Scripture really is diminished. In fact, I saw this week, uh, somebody posted something just really uh, shouldn't have even been controversial on social media about the Bible is my guide, something like that. And somebody responded and said, well, no, the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> I mean, what in the world? Can't we say the Bible is our guide? What is wrong with saying that? And yet some people just so emphasize the Holy Spirit in this subjective uh, type of experience that, in, again, in some circles, they really do diminish Scripture. Um, and then the, also, the, a lot of the Pentecostal movement tended to focus on the supernatural experiences, the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, um, instead of what I see Scripture teaching is the primary work of the Spirit in us, which is our sanctification. I think that's why the Bible talks about him as the Holy Spirit, not the magic spirit. Right? It's emphasizing the, the Spirit's primary role in our lives is to make us holy. It's not to uh, necessarily do all of these sort of supernatural, miraculous things in us. Um, the emphasis throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He guides us to righteousness. He empowers us to live for and serve God. Uh, at rare points in Scripture, we do see the Spirit poured out in a way that results in miraculous signs, uh, miracles of His presence, and so forth. All of that's true, but those are not the norm in Scripture. Those are rare points, uh, nor is that the emphasis of the epistles. Uh, we'll see more of that later. Uh, Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. Now again, there are times when the Spirit did manifest Himself in more visible ways, uh, like speaking in tongues, prophesying, and so forth, Old and New Testament. This isn't just a, a Pentecost reality. I mean, think of uh, in the Old Testament like Saul, when the Spirit comes on him and he prophesies. Um, Samson, the Spirit of God comes on him and he kills you know, a ridiculous amount of people. So there are other manifestations, even in the Old Testament, uh, of the Holy Spirit's role in, in miraculous uh, supernatural ways like that. But the primary way in which the Spirit manifests His presence, uh, the presence of God in our lives today, is through our growth in holiness. Uh, that's why the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it's not miracles necessarily. The evidence is love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, you know, 
Um, so making us more like Christ. So you've got these two sides, um, two ditches, if you will, in American uh, Christianity today. One side emphasis, emphasizes the Holy Spirit in a, uh, I would say, distorted way. The other side, which is where I come from, basically acts like the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. Uh, right? It's, it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Uh, it's just sort of like the, the Spirit's just not really uh, a big part of what we talk about. Um, and that's, that is a major mistake, because the Spirit's role in our lives is one of the focal points of the New Testament. And it's one of the main distinguishing factors between New Testament Christianity and Old Testament Judaism, is the fact that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, as New Testament saints. So, as we begin our study of the Spirit, uh, I hope all of us will become more aware of the Spirit consciously seeking to be led by Him. And we're going to, talk to we're going to start today by talking about what the Spirit is. Uh, most of us has, have a category for Jesus, right? He is God in a human body. We see him um, acting and talking and doing things in the Gospels, and so we have a pretty good grasp of what Jesus is. Uh, the Father might be a little bit more fuzzy, uh, but most of us kind of think, well, the Father, he's, he's sort of up there uh, controlling things. and you know. But then when we think of the Spirit, now we're really fuzzy. Uh, some of us think of the Spirit sort of like a force, uh, like, you know, the Star Wars view of the Holy Spirit. May the force be with you. It's sort of this impersonal thing that just sort of uh, empowers people, uh, but not really a person. Uh, we might think of it sort of like electricity. Uh, and this is really evidenced by the fact that many times the Holy Spirit is referred to as an it instead of a he. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Even in worship music sometimes, uh, you'll see something like, you know, God, send your spirit, let it fill this room. What is that saying? It's sort of making the, the implicit uh, statement that the Holy Spirit is not a person. That's an it. It's a thing. It's sort of a, a force. Um, now, it is. I think it's understandable where that <clears throat> problem comes from. The Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. Uh, you get that at the end, ruach. Uh, in Greek, it's pneuma. Both of them basically mean the same thing. It has a semantic range that can include... Uh, spirit, breath, or wind. Depending on the context, it can mean any of those. And so if you think about that, some of us, you know, we do kind of think of the Spirit of God like the wind of God, the breath of God. Uh, not really God himself. Not a person, again, but sort of a force. And, and I think we, we can think of that like uh, the arm of God, right? You see, in the, in the Old Testament, it talks about the Spirit of God did this or whatever. Uh, we, we sort of put that in the same category as the arm of the Lord. Like, the Lord did this, and he did it by his power, as opposed to thinking of the Spirit as a distinct person in the Trinity. But as New Testament Christians, we ought to know better than that. We'll look at some evidence from Scripture uh, that the Spirit is indeed a person, every bit as much as the Father, every bit as much as, as Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He has a mind, emotions, and will, and intellect, and so on, as we'll see. Uh, first of all, under the personhood of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has a mind, emotions, and will. We'll go through each one of these and uh, show some scriptures for them all. Number one, the, the Spirit has a mind. Uh, Romans 8, verse 27. Uh, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit has a mind. Also, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So if the spirit of God is comprehending things, he must have a mind. 
Okay, so number one, uh, spirit has a mind. He thinks, which is something impersonal forces don't do. Number two, Holy Spirit has emotions. Uh, Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Also, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, you can't grieve electricity. No matter what you do to that light switch back there, the, the electricity is not going to be grieved. <clears throat> and so the fact that the Holy Spirit has emotions indicates his personhood. Number three, the Spirit has a will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, this is a text we'll return to later when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But at the end of that list of gifts uh, that the Spirit gives to each one of us in the church, Paul says in verse 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, <clears throat> who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Uh, also, another uh, text you could put under the will of the Spirit is Acts 15. Uh, this is the Jerusalem Council, where they uh, meet and write out this letter, send it to the churches, and it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements they go on to explain uh, in the rest of that letter. But just notice there, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit uh, has a will. Again, that, that sentence would make no sense if we think of the Spirit as just an impersonal force. Okay, so the Holy Spirit has a mind, emotions, and will. The Spirit is a he, not an it. Uh, next, under the personhood of the Spirit, he performs actions like a person. All of this is trying to explain to us how we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, not a thing, not a force, uh, not like electricity or wind, but an actual person. Um, okay, so he, he performs actions like a person. Number one, the Spirit teaches. <clears throat> John fourteen twenty five. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, by the way, we'll talk more about this maybe in a couple of weeks, but just a quick note there on John 14, he is talking to the 12 apostles. Okay, many times these texts are applied to all of us as Christians. I'm sure probably everybody here has heard that before. Uh, the Holy Spirit, he, he teaches you, and he brings things to your remembrance from Scripture. Okay, uh, that's, but th this is not to us. This is written, uh, stated from Jesus to the 12 apostles. Okay, this is not a good text to prove that. that those, those things may be true, but don't look here for uh, proof of that. Uh, because Jesus is saying to them, I have spoken to you, to you 12 apostles, that's verse 25, while I'm with you, when I leave earth, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you more, and he's going to bring to remembrance the things that I've told you, right, while on earth. That doesn't apply to us, <laughs> unless you've talked to Jesus while he was on earth. Okay, so he's talking to the apostles. Uh, and by the way, this is how the writings of the apostles were inspired. We are not relying on, uh, you know, Matthew's memory of the events in the life of Jesus in his gospel. Uh, the Holy Spirit taught him and brought to his remembrance the things that Jesus had said. And so uh, when you read Matthew's gospel, again, you're not merely reading a human account of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, but it was guided and uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Same with the apostles' letters. Those letters are the product of the Holy Spirit teaching them. Uh, God had more to say to the apostles than what Jesus told them during his life. Uh, much of it wouldn't have made any sense to them at the time, you know, before his death and resurrection. And so God sends the Holy Spirit to the apostles and teaches them the rest. This is what Jesus says in John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So 
Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, I still have a lot to teach you, apostles, but you can't bear it now. Again, you wouldn't even understand a lot of this. Uh, so the spirit is going to come. He's going to guide you into truth. He's going to teach you, and then you're going to write what he says, and that's where we get our New Testament scriptures. We can't do that again. These promises are written, uh, given to the 12 apostles. Okay. Uh, I said that would be a quick little sidetrack, but it wasn't very quick. Uh, we're looking at the actions of the Spirit that indicate personality. Okay, number two, the Spirit bears witness. John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit teaches, the Spirit bears witness. Number three, the Spirit leads or guides. These are all actions of a human, a person. I'm not a human, I shouldn't say that, a person. Uh, Electricity doesn't do this. Wind doesn't do this. This is a, a person that does these actions. The Spirit leads or guides. Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Number four, the Spirit intercedes. Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, just notice there, it doesn't say the Spirit itself, the Spirit himself. This is a person we're talking about. Number five, the Spirit loves. Romans 15, 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God and on my behalf. And then number six, the Spirit speaks. And this might be the best evidence for the personhood of the Spirit. Uh, Acts 13, 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit performs actions that only persons can. Uh, next, proof of the personhood of the Spirit. He is treated like a person. And uh, incidentally, all of these are negative treatments, but that's just what we have. I'll show you what I mean by this in a minute. Number one, the Spirit can be resisted. Okay, Acts 7.51 you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Uh, next, the Spirit can be insulted or outraged. Uh, Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That can be translated outraged or insulted. Uh, either way, again, that would make no sense of anything but a person. You can't outrage electricity. Uh, number three, the Spirit can be blasphemed. Matthew twelve thirty one. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. By the way, that's a pretty good indication of the deity of the Spirit, right? Because if, if he's able to be blasphemed, then that would imply that he is God. Uh, number four, but we'll get to that later. Number four, uh, the Spirit can be ignored. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Quenching is like uh, extinguishing a fire. So the Spirit's urging you to do something, and you're just kind of shutting him up. Uh, that would be quenching the Spirit, ignoring him. Uh, last one, number five, the Spirit can be lied to. And this will transition us nicely into talking about the deity of the Spirit, because this text in Acts 5 is uh, one of the best Proof texts, if you will, to show that the Holy Spirit is God. So the Spirit can be lied to. Uh, Acts 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas has some land uh, that he sells, and he gives the proceeds to the church. Uh, next verse is chapter 5, verse 1. Don't ask me why there's a chapter break here. This is one of the worst chapter breaks that was ever put in the Bible, because uh, it's literally right in the middle of a story. I mean, look at the first word of verse 1 is but. Uh, so clearly this is talking in the same context here. Uh, some of these things, uh, anyways, they, they drive me nuts when they put a chapter break somewhere and totally interrupt the flow. I think the worst one is um, Ephesians 5, where Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Next verse, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, he's therefore, in this way, by being kind to one another, forgiving one another, you're imitating God. And there's a chapter break right in the middle, so hardly anybody ever catches uh, the connection between those two verses. Anyways, I digress. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, so Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they saw what Barnabas did, selling this field, giving the proceeds to the church, and they thought, well, that looks really cool. We want to do that. So they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so they're acting like they were doing what Barnabas did. If you keep reading later, Sapphira comes right out and says, you know, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this amount? And she says, yeah. So that's clearly they're lying. They're trying to uh, say we're giving all the proceeds to the church, but in fact, they kept part of it back, um, which again, would have been fine had it not been for their deception. They were making it appear as though they were giving it all uh, like Barnabas did. Verse three, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land so the Spirit can be lied to? Uh, now, doesn't that indicate that the Spirit is a person? I mean, can you lie to the wind? Can you lie to electricity? No. Uh, lying implies that the one to whom you are lying is a moral agent. Okay, I hope that um, sufficiently convinces you that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. Uh, any questions on that? Any pushback on that? Yes. Would we worship the Holy Spirit like we do God? Uh, yes, the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, as I've said before, I think we pray to the Father. Um, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. But the Holy Spirit is every bit as much as, of God as Jesus and the Father is. And Jesus and the Father are worshipped in, in the New Testament. So yes, I would say that the Spirit is, you know, the big thing we got to maybe correct in our thinking is that the Holy Spirit is on the same level as the other two persons. It's not as though, you know, at least in my thinking, I, I've always kind of thought the Father's really God, Jesus is pretty close, and the Spirit's kind of down here. But no, they're, they're all three equally and fully God. Um, and you see that in many texts in the New Testament. We'll see some of these, uh, if we have time later, <clears throat> where the three are mentioned right in a row, right? I mean, think of, uh, you know, the Great Commission, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, there's that's one name singular Yahweh, but you know, subsisting in all three persons. Catherine, do you have a question? What do I mean when I say that the Spirit is a person? That he has mind, emotions, will, that he has a center of consciousness, um, that he is, you know, he speaks, he acts. So he is every bit as personal as Jesus and the Father. Not a human. Right. Correct. Yeah. So did you hear her question? Um, G Jesus is the only one of the three that has a physical body. 
Okay, so they all three have existed eternally as spirits. In the incarnation, Jesus takes on human flesh, and from what I can see in Scripture, he maintains that. So he still is God and man. Um, you know, he says in Acts 1, uh, in the same way that I left, you're going to see me coming back. Uh, there's, there's several ways you can, you can look at Scripture and see that he still maintains his human body. <laughs> that doctrine uh, that Jesus maintains his human, human flesh is called, uh, what is that called? The, the uh, what is it called? Extra Calvinisticus. It's the dumbest name for a doctrine I've ever heard. I don't know why it's called that. Uh, but if you Google, I think it's called Extra Calvinisticus. Extra Calvinisticus. Somehow it was related to John Calvin that he taught that. So anyways, um, yes. Okay. So let me go back to your first question because I don't know if I answered it fully. Um, Jesus is the only, if we could say, human of the three. Right? He's the only one that has a human flesh in addition to being God. The Spirit and Father are not humans, but they are persons. And by persons, we mean they relate to each other as personal beings. Or not, I shouldn't say personal beings, but as persons. Um, they speak, they act. So the main thing I'm, I'm pushing against is don't think of the Holy Spirit like a force or like wind. You know, Because a lot of these texts that we read in the New Testament, we, it's easy to get tripped up on that. To think of the Spirit of God is just God doing something as opposed to a distinct person in the Trinity. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm, I forgot your second question now. How does one grieve the Holy Spirit? We'll get to that more later, um, primarily by resisting him. So, you know, the Spirit, again, I believe the primary role of the Holy Spirit's work in all of our lives as Christians is to make us more like Christ. Um, he, he urges us, he convicts us of sin. He urges us to do right. And uh, we'll see that more as we go along. That's why the evidences of the Spirit in a person's life are, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, which are our characteristics of Christ. In other words, he is making us more like Christ. So quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit is resisting that work. So when the Spirit convicts us of sin and we just do it anyways, when the Spirit urges us to do something right and we refuse to, um, that's my understanding of grieving the Holy Spirit. But good questions. Anything else? We're kind of at a crossroads here where I don't, I don't want to go into the next section. We'll have to save that. Uh, we'll start it because we are here in Acts 5, but then we'll save the rest for next week. So, uh, Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he, not an it. And if I hear any of you over the next few weeks referring to the Holy Spirit as an it, uh, you will receive a stern rebuke and uh, possibly a 120-volt shock. No, I'm kidding. Um, all right. We believe the Holy Spirit is a person. Not only that, we believe the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person of the Trinity, fully divine. Uh, we covered this briefly when we talked about the Spirit a few uh, months ago, when we talked about the Trinity, excuse me. Uh, but we're going to go into a bit more detail here. Again, we'll start it uh, today, and then because we're running out of time, I'll have to pick up next week. But the, the Holy Spirit is God, fully God, just as much God as Jesus or the Father. Um, one of the most straightforward statements of the Spirit's deity is here in Acts 5. So you remember uh, verse 3 says, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to whom? The Holy Spirit, right? He lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
Okay, so in verse 3, he says you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, he goes on to say you lied to God. So the Holy Spirit, therefore, is God. Uh, that is one of the clearest texts to, to see the deity of the Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 would be another one. Uh, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So we are the temple of God. The temple of God means it's the place that God dwells, uh, the place of God's presence. And so if we are God's temple, we are the house of God, if you will, and the Spirit lives in us, then the Spirit is God. See what I'm saying there? So um, if I say, this is my dog house and Fido lives here, then Fido is my dog, right? And then that's sort of what Paul is saying here. You are the temple of God. You are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. Uh, therefore, God's Spirit is God himself. Does that make is that clear to you? I don't know if I just said that very well or not, but the Holy Spirit is God. Does that make any sense? Okay. Uh, next, we will see the Holy Spirit. This will probably be as far as we get today. The Holy Spirit... Um, has attributes that only God has. This is another way we can see the deity of the Spirit. I'm sorry, that's the next section. This one is uh, Old Testament text. So um, we, can, we can see the deity of, of the Spirit by comparing texts in the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament. We did this with Jesus as well, if you remember. Uh, we looked at several uh, passages uh, kind of back and forth, and you can see you know, in the Old Testament it says God did this, and then you look at the New Testament, it says Jesus did this. And so you can see Jesus is you know, the person in the Trinity being spoken of. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so the Lord is speaking, God is speaking to Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Again, interesting pronoun choice there. Who will go for us? That's an indication of the Trinity. Uh, then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, this is still the Lord speaking, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So those are God's words, the words of the Lord to the prophet Isaiah. Now in Acts 28, notice verse 25, uh, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see you never perceive, this people's heart has grown dull, and, and so forth. He continues on with the rest of the quote. So in Isaiah 6, the voice of the Lord says this to Isaiah, and in Acts 28, Paul says that was the Holy Spirit, and therefore, Holy Spirit is God. Uh, let's do one more. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. Again, all caps, Lord, means Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. So Yahweh says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Uh, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, when uh, my covenant that they broke. The why was their husband, declares the Lord. Again, notice, declares Yahweh. So he's, he's still God talking. Uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sins no more. So all of that is God speaking. Uh, now notice the author of Hebrews, when he quotes this, in chapter 10 says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Okay, so the author of Hebrews says that was the Holy Spirit speaking back in Jeremiah 31. And over and over throughout the text in Jeremiah, it says, declares Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh, the Spirit, are the same. Uh, all right, we are out of time there. We'll have to pick up there next week with uh, the attributes of the Spirit.